throughout the celebration or remembrance of Advent, that's what we've been through for four weeks. I, I don't come from a church with a lot of high tradition, but Advent is the season that we remember or celebrate or anticipate the coming of the baby Jesus. We used Philippians 2, 5 through 11 as kind of a template because it explains the gospel from God's side. God humbled himself, took on human form, died on a cross, and then was elevated or exalted to the name above every name in heaven above. That's the gospel, right? We sang it repeatedly today. I think it provided a great overview, but I don't want us to forget that this section that we've been reading is in a bigger section of Scripture that that encourages us to have the mind of Christ. We have his mind already, and we are to appropriate his mind into our lives and daily living. That's where the rub comes, right? And, and what Paul is addressing here is this age-old question about who's responsible for my sanctification or the process of ongoing salvation in my life. Is it God or is it me? There are people who say, well, God does it all, so you just lay in bed until he sanctifies you. I've tried that. Guess what? It doesn't work much. And then on the other side of the coin, we say, okay, I'm going to work it up. I'm going to make it happen. Guess what? We can't do that either. It's this marriage of the two, God's responsibility and my participation with him in the process. And that's what Paul answers today. David read another illustration of it, Ephesians. If you read Paul's writings, you will find this in every one of his letters to the churches. Guess why? Are you already asleep? Guess why? Oh, well done. I thought you were going to answer. Because churches are full of people. And we have to be reminded of this. David said it today in the blog tomorrow. I'm going to encourage you to get a little book that some of us are reading called. Oh, I should have written it down. But I'll put it in the blog so you can read it tomorrow. But it's, it's the idea that we are to continue to speak the gospel to ourselves every day and to each other. Because we tend to believe other voices other than the gospel message, don't we? We tend to believe our own guilt, our own shame, what others say. We sang it this morning. This is who you are. You're a good, good father, and I am loved by you. That's the message of the gospel that should characterize and dictate the decisions we make and the way we live. I'm a little frustrated trying to preach this sermon this morning because my words don't do it justice, and yet Paul uses words. So I'm praying, God, take my words and make them way more better than I Pry our hearts and our minds open. So God has been doing that with me this week. If you don't get it, do more study. 
I'm going to reread Philippians 2, 1 through 18 to remind us the context of this thing we've been celebrating, the advent of God's Son. Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, which I believe is in the Bible on the bench there if you need one. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. By the way, guess what that word means? Nothing. Pretty good, students. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is where the rub begins to come, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be latched onto or grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's that seeming contradiction. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And let me give you the reminder that I am in prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul's been encouraging the Philippian believers to live their lives worthy of the gospel in his absence. We're going to focus on verses 12 and 13 today, and I want to suggest to you that we're not going to get it all done. My frustration is all I can do is try and whet your appetite. I did not sleep a wink last night, so do not hold me accountable for what my lips do on their own accord. 
I was so wound up by this passage that I kept going over and over it, and I kept giving up, getting up and making it longer and longer. Did you bring lunch? <laughs> it's the joy of wrestling with the Word of God that, that, that I hope you leave here and then engage in. But Paul has been encouraging the Philippians believers to live their lives worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27, I think, might be the theme verse of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul is encouraging his readers to do and to be. And he's going to explain that in our verses today. Notice that it's both an individual responsibility and a corporate responsibility. You are to live your life worthy of the gospel in the midst of a bunch of people who are trying to live their life worthy of the gospel. I was asking somebody in the first service, did I make any sense? And she said, yeah, life's messy and God's helping. I said, I should have just preached that. She said, well, why don't you in the second service? I said, because I'm not going to. That's the point. Our individual responsibility to live lives worthy of the gospel is always lived out in a corporate setting. Where's the hardest place to live the gospel? In your home. Is it not? Now, don't spouses look at each other like this. See, I see you up here. It's in our home. Why? Because we live with each other all the time. My wife frustrated me this week. Shows you how carnal I am. And it's none of your business why. But what I got to do is choose in that moment of time, or actually a little later, whether I was going to live the gospel or live what I wanted to say. Not that my wife would ever deserve what I wanted to say. Always our experience of the gospel is tested and proven in the light and the life of relationships. Anybody ever bug you? Now, don't look at your spouse again. I'm watching. Don't point at somebody. It's, <laughs> my mom was looking at me and thinking of pointing at me. Look at her. She shakes her finger just like my mom did. We get the opportunity to say those who bug us are the greatest test of the working out of God's gospel in our lives. That's why we got to preach it to ourselves and to each other every day, right? Do you ever not want to obey the gospel? <laughs> of course. And that's where we make a choice, my will or his 
That's the reality of the gospel being worked out in our lives. It's worked out in a corporate entity. And by that, I don't mean a corporation. I mean in relationship, within the body or the family of God. You know the second hardest place to live out the gospel? In church. You know why? We're family. We know each other well. We rub shoulders. And you know what happens when you rub shoulders too much? You get a burn. It gets hot. That's what Paul describes in the first verses of chapter 2. He, he wanted, his admonition was for the Philippian believers to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side, because they get along so well. No, turn your head side to side. For the sake of the gospel, they choose to get along for the sake of the gospel, not because we like each other so well. Some of us are not so likable on any given day. Have you noticed? Now you can go like this. That's what Paul describes, and it's exemplified by Christ, that this is the mind that he had towards his father and thus towards his father's children. I'm going to ask you a question. This dawned on me about 2 o'clock this morning or sometime. Was it any easier for God to humble himself and walk in obedience than it is for us? I think sometimes we tend to think that, oh, yeah, God's God, so it was easy for him to humble himself. I mean, why wouldn't he choose to do that? Obviously, he's God. The point is that he is God who had the right to be served. For him to humble himself is way more significant than us humbling ourselves. And he did it by the same power and will that we're called to do it with by he who works both to will and to do his good pleasure. It was no easier for him than it is for us. But that's why he serves as the model for who we are to be and the power for who we are to be. It was the giving of himself for the redemption of his people. So chapter 2, 12 to 13, talks about how that works. The gospel is not just something done to us or for us, it is something we actively and eternally participate in. Not because we must. God doesn't look at you and say, respond to the gospel rightly or else. That's not what fear and trembling means. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. He's saying, I gave my life for you. Why? So that you could be all that I desire for you to be. For my pleasure, he says, and for the glory of my Father. We tend to think we have a better idea about life than God. Right? Our culture says it. We say it. I say all the time, well, God did this, but he didn't ask my permission. He really doesn't care about my opinion except that he cares that we discuss it. But what God wants to do in me is for his pleasure 
God's glory and my benefit. He'll let me do my own thing, but it's always to my own detriment. Always, no matter what people tell you. Christ has paved the way for us to live in the gospel, not just in light of the gospel, but actually in the gospel. So this morning, we're going to focus on what he says. And he starts again with a therefore. Paul has woven this thought line logically and strategically. And you keep running into therefores in this passage because there's cause and effect, cause and effect. Therefore, he says. And what's the therefore? Therefore. You got to follow his logic. Because of Christ's willingness to humble himself, Christ, God, highly exalted Christ. And the implication is that therefore, if we humble ourselves, he will in due time exalt us. We can't exalt ourselves, he will exalt us if we humble ourselves. Therefore, Work out your salvation in that manner, the way Christ did, and the same result will be ours. There's a present reality, a future glory in working out our salvation. In fact, there's a past reality, there's a present reality, and there's a future reality to this thing we call salvation. So many of us are stuck with, I prayed a prayer sometime in the past, and that's all there is. Bummer. If that's all there is, bummer. And the reason that so many of us struggle on a daily basis with things we call habits or addictions or besetting sins is that we don't realize what God has gifted us in Him and what He has called us to become in Him. And so we live enslaved to our old natures, thinking that's the life we're destined for. That's a sorry salvation. If it only is pie in the sky by and by. I don't know if Pastor Ed coined that phrase or copied that phrase, but I think that's what we think of. Well, I'm just going to get through this life, and when I get to heaven, I hope it's better. That's not the salvation that Paul is describing. Therefore, he says, work out your salvation in the manner, in like manner, and the result, the same result, will be yours. Listen to Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, and I know you don't like that word, but I didn't write it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the tense of those verbs? Past, thank you. Some of you passed English. They're all past tense. It's his work from start to finish. Philippians 1, 6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. This is his work, and he's not going to leave it half done, half baked. 
Our salvation, we tend to continue as if it's half-baked, and it is. He's continuing to produce it, but we live in that half-baked state. Working out our salvation is based on the reality of what Christ did on our, our behalf and what God did on his behalf. It is also based on his continual working on our behalf. It's for the joy set before us, the exaltation of when we see him, our glorification, which is considered a done deal, and the current available resources, it's because of all that that we can indeed work out our salvation. And the power to accomplish the humbling of ourselves is the same power by which Jesus, the Christ, chose to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. It's the power that worked in Christ, and it's the power that works in us. And then Paul says, therefore, dear friends... Paul continues to address these believers as friends. As we think back to what we've already seen in Philippians, it is because of their partnership in the gospel. They received the gospel from Paul by faith, and they embraced it and participated in it with Paul by faith. There's a bond that is different between those owned by the gospel than those who have an interest in the gospel. There's a difference between those who are consumed with and by the gospel than those who are observers, maybe even students of the gospel. There are people who are interested in talking about the gospel, perhaps even studying the gospel, debating what the gospel means, and there are those that the gospel grabs at the core of who they are, and they can't let it go, and it won't let them go. They can't go back. For Paul and the Philippians, to whom he is writing the gospel, is not a hobby, and it's not a hobby horse. It's not an interest in their lives. It is their lives. It owns them. And we see that in the fact that even in Paul's imprisonment, he says, I am glad I'm here. And he encourages them that in their suffering, rejoice. Why? Because it's part of the on-working gospel, and the gospel is not only working in you, it's working through you to those who observe the working in you. And then Paul says, obey. I made the statement in our last time together, obedience is one of those words that best describes Jesus's life. If I were to ask you to describe Jesus's life, many of us would say love, peace. The truth is sacrifice because of obedience. Over and over and over, Jesus said, I only do what my father asked me to do. And you see it graphically right before the cross. Oh, dad, we really got to go this way. If it's possible, 
Lord, Father, God, I really don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Paul talks about obedience while he was with them. Spiritual mentors train in obedience. The truth is any mentor trains in obedience. Have you been trained by anybody in anything? Todd trains golfers, which is an exercise in futility. <laughs> I used to try and train basketball players. And uh, I, I, I've trained or coached snow skiers. You know what? I know people, my nephew and his family are into some kind of karate or ultimate fighting or beating each other up. Do you know what the purpose of a mentor is? To train us to obey. What do they do in boat camp? Boat camp. I don't know what they do in boat camp, but in boot camp. <laughs> oh, baby, I got to take a nap. What do they do in boot camp? They take your will out of your carcass. Or they drum you out of boot camp. And they say, you're going to submit your will to our will for the sake of the guys whose lives depend on my will. Not my will, the boss's will. That's the point of training. It's to substitute our will for their will. We have a rule on the ski hill when I was teaching, and that is this. You don't teach your spouse or significant other or your kids, and I'm finding perhaps your grandkids. You know why? They don't want to submit their will to yours. They've been practicing every day at home. And so when you put on a certain color jacket with a pin that says, I are professional, that's how they say it in North Idaho. Suddenly, this little cherub is supposedly willing to listen to you as we try and exert our will over their will to help them be what they want to be, which is a skier, not a crasher. We don't like the word obey because it implies submitting of our wills to another. How many of us like that? I remember being coached in basketball. And we were griping to our coach about something. And he called us all into a meeting. I'll never forget this. It still makes me, gives me the heebie-jeebies. There are a lot of ways to play basketball. But unless we all play one way, we're not going to win. I'm the coach. You're playing my way or turn in your jersey. Nobody moved. We all wanted to play. So we decided to play Mama's Way. That's the nickname for him. It was his way or our way, but it couldn't be both ways. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is saying. We'll see it at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 that there are those who say, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. 
Remember the song, I did it my way. That's not a Christian song, although I met a college student who sang it in our college group. I corrected him. For many, Philippians 3, 18 and 19, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their own cravings, their own desires, which we think supersedes the will of God for some reason. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Spiritual mentors are extremely valuable in setting a pattern and a course in our lives. But Paul goes on to talk about obedience while he was not with him. There comes a time in each of our lives when we must make our faith our own, right? A mentor can only go so far. We often talk here about family-based ministries, and I love what David does. In elementary school, we want families involved in the ministry. Parents are the primary mentors of kids. You know which kids, the statistics are astronomical <clears throat> about kids that dump their faith at the end of high school. You know which kids don't? Those who are mentored by their parents. Doesn't matter what kind of school you send them to, whether you homeschool them, whether you don't school them, whether you send them to ski school. That was a joke. It matters if parents are actively not talking about the gospel, mentoring in the gospel. And so Paul talks about obedience when he's not with them. Our participation in the gospel and pattern in our lives has to become ours. That's why in middle school, kids are beginning to think they're adults. <laughs> in middle school and high school, we try then and provide other mentors who echo what parents say. Because as they're becoming adults, so many parents worry about their children going off to college and losing their faith. Not if they're mentored. That should be tested before they go off to school. We need to talk just a little bit about this. It could sound like what Paul is saying is to work for their salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's telling them to work out their salvation in their individual lives. Remember our definition of obedience? It's to come under what we hear and not just what we hear, what we take in. Hearing in the sense of we take it to heart. As David said this morning, we're to speak the gospel to ourselves and to each other every day. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13? The disciples said, hey, how come you teach him parables? What did he say? Nope, that wasn't what he said. <laughs> we tend to think it was so he could make it clear. That's not what he said. He said, because people don't want to hear what I have to say. Matthew 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. And he goes on to quote Isaiah. They don't want to hear. 
They don't want to know. So why should I waste my breath? So I say it in parables for those who really want to get it. They'll get it for those who don't. Jesus said it clearly to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, 9, they, 22, 29. They spent their years trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't get it because you don't want to get it. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. So when he challenges his readers, he said, listen, by this time, I should be able to teach you some pretty deep things about God, but you're dull of hearing. That word dull means lazy. You can tear that passage out if you want to. Sluggish, slow. Hearing what God has to say is a gift of God and a choice on our part. If we don't want to hear what God has to say, we're not going to choose to come under it anyhow, so we will refuse to hear it, so therefore we can't bring our lives into conformity of it. When God says something I don't like, what do I do? I choose what I like, or I hear and choose what he says. Even though I don't like it, what God says is for his enjoyment, his glory, and our benefit. The word translated work out here is a word that most often is translated by Paul to produce. It means to affect and effect. How'd you like that for an English deal? It means to bring about something as a result of. I'm going to give you just a couple of references, probably just one because I'm going to go overtime, so just hold your horses. Some of us are memorizing a passage in Romans 5, so I'm going to read verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance. That's the word. It, 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 it makes it happen. It brings it about. It is working out endurance. Suffering produces endurance. It works it out. So what Paul is saying is work out your salvation in the sense that you help produce the outcome. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary, translates this word as continuous, ongoing, sustained effort on our part. Sustained effort towards what? Our salvation. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not that I work and obtain my salvation in the sense that by faith I trust in what Christ has done on the finished work of the cross. It is that I continue to work out or bring about the effectual working of the salvation in my everyday life. God's not going to override my will. Have you noticed that? Thank you. It's a voice from heaven. I always use this illustration. If God calls me to give, he has yet to levitate my wallet. 
Well, if God really wanted me to give to a particular thing, he'd take my wallet out, pick out the card, put it in the card reader, and make sure it's just the right amount. What does he ask me to do? Give <laughs> to a particular thing cheerfully. He asked me to cooperate with what he is willing and wanting to do in my life. As we face difficult decisions in life, we're to work out our faith in the midst of those decisions. What serves the gospel? Well, what causes us to enjoy the freedom of not being controlled by our flesh? So many of us are controlled by habits by feelings or by addictions. That's us not giving in. That's us giving in to our wills, not his. And I know that's not as simple as it sounds, but that's what is happening. And all of that is tested in the context of relationships, always. When my wife says something unedifying to me, I wish you guys could see her looks. We need a camera that goes this way. Or more accurately, when she says something that I interpret as unedifying, what do I want to do? I heard a guy say one time, and he meant it, if my wife and family would just do what I tell them, things would go better. I was sitting there thinking, no, no, not always. The gospel is to impact. What, what if somebody does something we don't like? What about difficult people? It can't apply to difficult people. Isn't that where it's tested? The gospel has the power, and we have the privilege of it retooling all. Of our lives. With fear and trembling, that's an interesting phrase. I don't think it means that we walk on eggshells imagining that the hand of God is going to smack us. I think it's the idea of awe. We work out our salvation because God, the God of the universe, is at work in us. Is that awesome? That should, that should cause us to go, you've got to be kidding. Why would God call me, and why would God want to work in me? That's what it means with awe, with a, a stunned response that the God of the universe cares enough to conform me to his image. That's part of this thing we call salvation. We're stunned that God would work his good pleasure in us. It's an overwhelming privilege to have God working in us. And as he works to his good pleasure, our pleasure is increased. So the grounds for obedience is God working in us both to will and to do. Someone has said, it is God who supplies the want to and the can do. I'm going to give you two references because you guys are listening much slower than the first service did. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. 
in Colossians 1.29. What you're going to see in those references is the very balance of God working and us responding. Colossians 1.29 says this, For I toil, I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil with his energy that powerfully works within me. It's the completing, not competing truths of God's will and ours. Let me say that again. We tend to think of those things as competing. They are completing truths that happen in our lives. He wills. Have you ever experienced an internal battle regarding God's will? The first service is obviously more carnal than you. Every day, don't you face at some moment the opportunity to say, I want what I want because I want it. As opposed to, I want what you want because you want to change me and free me from myself. Salvation, this salvation is not just the freedom from the penalty of sin, it's the freedom from ourselves. Most of us are enslaved to ourselves, and God wants to undo that. He will will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you've read it and read it and read it, because I every. Everything I see goes back to what Paul is saying here. He talks about presenting our body as a living sacrifice. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Because you and I won't ever figure that out on our own. We'll short circuit it. Christian conduct has far less to do with a series of rules than it does with a heart willing to honor God by discovering and participating in his good and perfect will for us and with us. So it is he who wills to do his will, but it doesn't stop there. He will do it. He has the power to, to, that we can appropriate. Sometimes I think we want what God wants if it's convenient or if we really don't have to face who we are in order for him to change us. We're afraid of looking deeply in the mirror. We're afraid what will happen if we really give up control. We tend to fail at one of two levels. We fail to want what God wants or we fail to do what he wants. And he does it for his And the glory of God. We just went through Christmas. Do you remember that? What's the greatest joy for parents or grandparents at Christmas? It's when the kids go to sleep. Because <laughs> they get along. The greatest joy as we mature is to have our families enjoying each other. It's the greatest experience when they're working together on a puzzle rather than throwing it at each other. 
when they're enjoying what they got in a present and they would actually look at someone else and say, that's a cool gift I got. I'm glad you got it and I want it. That's what Paul is saying. He works in us for the joy, for his pleasure. And I want to tell you, when that happens with kids, it's frustrating. When it happens in adults, it's divisive and devastating. Some of us have family that we haven't seen on Christmas for a long time because they're estranged. Why are they estranged? Because at some level, somebody wants their way more than sacrificing for the good of the family and the joy of our Father. I'm going to close by reading this passage one more time. Listen to it in light of what we talked about. And we always want to point the finger and say, if they would get this right, <laughs> how much impact do you have on they? Come on. We have impact on us in the context of our relationships. Paul writes, so if if there is any encouragement in Christ, some translations say since. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Whose mind is that? His do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, a grasp, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in our homes, in our cars in our churches, in our families, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father, may this be our response. Teach us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. with the God who works in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure and our good. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord. Amen.